Thank you, Em, so much for reading that. I feel like it's such a soothing voice. I feel like I could sit down and listen to her read all the Harry Potter books and feel just, just absolutely fine. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. Uh, this is a bit of a public service announcement for Lunar New Year. Uh, newlyweds are meant to give double the amount of red pockets. So if you've got kids, make sure you look for the newlyweds. They are Jono and Michelle, Tom and Selena. Uh, there are a few others, so make sure you bring your kids up to them and do big smiles. It's good to have you all here. Yeah, don't run away so quickly. Um, as Stephen mentioned, we're doing communion today, which explains um, why the apprentices and interns are dressed up. That's the way to do it. Uh, but I'll explain more in just a moment. We're going we're gonna to try four stations today. One, two, three, four. Um, because of the amount of people that we have, which is super exciting and encouraging. Um, I hope you can be patient with us as you work out administratively um, how to make that as smooth as possible. Uh, but I also want to keep reminding us that if it's at all possible every week, if you can just keep sitting closer to the front to create space for the back. I realize that we've added an extra row or two at the back already, um, which is amazing, but we have lots of spare seats out the front. And if you, if you find it cold... Um, there are less air vents out the front as well. So that might help you, but it's also why I sweat, because there are no air vents over here. There's a design floor. Uh, why don't we come to God's Word in prayer? Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word to us. We thank you for just the amazing way that you subvert expectations and cultures. And so, Lord, today we ask that your Word would subvert us and our expectations, and our desires, and our longings. Our Lord and God, we thank you that we worship a crucified Savior, uh, but he did not stay dead, he raised to life. And so, Lord, um, may we savor this truth, may we submit to you as King, and may we live our lives accordingly. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, we come to our fourth installment in this series on the Apostles' Creed, and we've arrived at a very interesting line today. Uh, the line that we come to, if you've been following over the past few weeks, is He, Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. That's the line we're going to be focusing on. And this may prompt us to ask a very important question. What's so important about these events that warrant its inclusion into the Apostles' Creed? What's so important? You may remember that the Apostles' Creed is not the Bible, right? That we want to make it clear. It's a summary of the teachings of the Bible. It's kind of like the Sparknotes version, right? It was put together by the early church, and it has since been passed on from generation to generation to preserve sound doctrine and living. So while it is not the inspired Word of God, it is nevertheless theologically significant and has shaped the church and will continue to shape the church into the future. And so in light of that, the, one of the questions we should be asking is, why are these events so important that it is included in an ancient and doctrinally important document like the Creed? Because when you think about it, on the one hand, this just seems like an ordinary recount of history, right? Now, I love history, so I don't mind that, but you might not really care, and you're wondering why is it important. Because you see, these events aren't just recorded in the Bible. It's not our only source, these events literally are written in secular, non-Christian historical works as well. Uh, to be clear, these are authors who have no desire to advance the Christian faith. They are not evangelists. They are not apologists. They just want to do faithful history. And apparently, these events surrounding Jesus were so significant that they've made it into major history books. Go to any secular university, even if they reject and deny the Christian faith, they will read these books. For example... 
The first century Roman historian and senator Tacitus writes about this in his work, The Annals. You have this in your outlines. It says that Christus, from whom the name had its origins to Christ, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Those of you who study ancient history, Tacitus may be a name you're familiar with. Likewise, the Jewish historian Josephus writes this about Jesus. Here's another quote from his work, The Antiquities. Now, there was, this, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross and so on, the quote goes. These are secular, non-Christian historians. There are others like Pliny and Lucian who give ancient non-Christian testimony to the fact that Jesus suffered, crucified, and died. So here's a question, right? Isn't that good enough? Isn't it good enough that we have these sources already? Why include it in the creed? Well, as we examine these ideas closely, what should become evident to us is that these events are not just for mere historical interest. I'm not going to give you a lecture on history, even though I'd love to. Perhaps more importantly, they are theologically significant and practically relevant. They are theologically significant. It's going to shape your faith, and it's practically relevant. It's going to shape how you live. We'll explore how this is the case very soon. Now, this line of the creed comes from a number of very important Bible passages, but for today, we're going to focus on the one that was read to us, Matthew 27, verses 11 to 54. You may know this well, right? It is Jesus standing in trial before Pontius Pilate, and perhaps you're a reminder of that story when it was read just then. But I don't know what you usually associate with this trial, Usually when we read of this, uh, we think of Jesus being cruelly treated, a very classic Easter passage. After all, it is the prelude to the crucifixion, so there's a lot of doom and gloom. If you watch any Jesus movies, or even The Chosen or something like that, you you, you see these um, scenes being depicted with a lot of doom and gloom, kind of like the rain outside right now. right? It's the scene where Roman and Jewish authorities, usually opposing forces, they hate each other. But when it comes to Jesus, they set aside their differences. They band together to conspire against Jesus. It's usually a scene where Jesus is seen as the loser or the victim of an unjust judicial system. And that's totally understandable, right? These events portray injustice and discrimination. I mean, read verse 18 with me, right? It says, for he, Pontius Pilate, knew it was out of self-interest that they, the Jewish leaders, had handed Jesus over to him. This was a high-level conspiracy to murder an innocent man. But while all of this is true, reading this through the eyes of faith actually shows us that something unique and unexpected is taking place. Reading this through eyes of faith shows us that something unique and unexpected is taking place. If you blink, you'll miss it, right? Because the gospel writer Matthew uses a selection of sarcasm and irony to portray an alternative reality. Because you see, what appears on the surface is Jesus being beaten, mocked, and scorned. But what is actually happening here is Jesus being enthroned as king. This was the public coronation of Christ that no one expected. Look at verse 11 with me. The governor asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? This is the heart of the matter. For you know, T3 people, this is the main idea of the passage, if you will. 
Are you the king who is seeking to usurp the authority of Caesar? Are you the king whom the nations should bow down and submit to? Are you the king who demands the rightful rule over people's lives? And in no uncertain terms, Jesus replied, You have said so. The identity of Jesus is revealed in this passage. And it is with this answer, listen, his coronation commences. Look at the series of events. Start with verse 28 with me. As a part of this mocking ceremony, the the Roman soldiers stripped Jesus, as it was customary, but they put a scarlet robe on him. Scarlet robes are usually very expensive clothes for royalty. This year was meant to mimic an emperor's purple robe, an expensive robe that had to be dyed with expensive materials. Verse 29 tells us that they twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head. This is meant to mimic a royal crown, which symbolizes authority and headship. They even put a staff in his hand, a symbol of power. And they knelt before him and mockingly said, Hail the king of the Jews. You see, every single act of this was of ill and wicked intent. It is an act of cruel punishment, making life hell for an alleged criminal. It was an act of anti-Semitism. A common problem at the time when Jews were living in close proximity to non-Jews. It was also an act of cosmic treason, belittling God the Son. And yet while they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Because God's path to victory is not through glory, but through suffering. So what we observe here is that Jesus' enthronement as king would not take place in a private palace, but in the eyes of the public before the people whom he came to save. And so verse 32 shows that Jesus had to carry a cross and march to his place of crucifixion. Imagine this with me. It's like a royal parade. But instead of smiling and waving like the queen, he is dragging a torture of instrument to be killed. Verse 37 tells us he is recognized, albeit ironically, as the king of the Jews. Friends, to the common eye, what's taking place here is the finest example of injustice. But to those with eyes of faith, those who can discern events with God's providential plan in mind, what we're observing here is the coronation or the enthronement of King Jesus who has come not only to take away the sins of the world, but also to rule over his children with justice, love, and mercy. Even more specifically, though, these events also tell us three very important things about the kind of king that Jesus actually is. If you have the outlines, you can turn there with me. Because Matthew 27, verses 11 and 54, speaks of a king who knows injustice, speaks of a king who understands tragedy, and isolation and loneliness, and speaks of a king who invites a response. And as we work our way through our passage, what I hope you and I can see is that King Jesus is the king that we long for, and because he is the king that we long for, he is the king we can concede to and cry out to. He is a king that we can concede to and cry out to, and we get to apply that today as we share in communion. You see, this is not a king who rules at a distance, right? This is not a king who is cold and indifferent to the pains of the world that you and I live in. As you come to point one with me, I love us to see from our passage that this is a king who knows injustice and is thus able to sympathize with those who suffer the same. 
Matthew 27 verse 18 says this, For he, Pilate, knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. If you have your own Bibles, try this with me. I'd love for you to underline the expression self-interest. Or highlight that in your YouVersion apps, right? Because here, once again, we gain a very clear and objective verdict on Jesus. What we find here is not the presumption of innocence. Jesus here is not being accused of a crime, but considered innocent until proven guilty. No, we know even from his enemies that he was innocent beyond a shadow of a doubt. You see, Pilate was no friend of Jesus. But even Pilate knew that Jesus was standing before him in judgment, not because Jesus had done anything wrong, but because the Jewish religious leaders were jealous of Jesus' success in Jerusalem. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, what you'll discover all throughout is that Jesus is consistently rising in influence, rising in authority, rising in fame, while the religious leaders are losing credibility, losing power, and losing impact. And this was because Jesus was a threat to the religious institutions of the day. Uh, You see, the Jewish religious leaders were teaching that one was right with God based on adherence to religious laws, based on good works, based on moral righteousness. This was a message that enslaved and kept a person in bondage. You are only as good as your last accomplishment is effectively what religiosity teaches. It's very much like what we hear in our culture today. Uh, The religious leaders say that you have to be good enough to be with God and you have to be good enough to get God's approval. It's the same message we hear today, right? You've got to be beautiful enough, successful enough, powerful enough, accomplished enough. In sharp contrast, Jesus preached that one is right with God, not by virtue of goodness or morality within man or woman. Rather, it is based purely on God's grace and mercy. This here was a message that liberated people from bondage, from sin, from shame. And so because of this threat, the religious leaders concocted a plan to have Jesus trialed and ultimately killed. But you see, this was not a conspiracy plan behind closed doors. And if it was, it wasn't hidden very well. Because even Pilate knew that Jesus was there because the Jewish leaders were self-interested. If you have another English translation... Uh, Maybe if you have an app, you can just try a different one like the ESV or the CSB. The word used for self-interest is literally envy, is literally jealousy. They were envy and jealous of Jesus because people were flocking to him and undermining their own religious systems and structures. Jesus was undeniably innocent. What's funny is that even Pilate's wife knew that. She did not want to have anything to do with the trial. She had no interest in Jesus being set free. She did not have anything to gain. But this is what verse 19 says. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, the wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. She reinforces Jesus' innocence. As a side note, what's very interesting here is that Pilate's wife is a pagan, an unbeliever. And yet this pagan unbeliever sees Jesus' innocence more clearly than even the religious folk. This is an indictment on the religious. But it's also a clear demonstration of the brokenness of their legal system where injustice is evident yet ignored. 
Jesus' innocence is further emphasized in verse 15 to 23, where Jesus is preferred over a real criminal by the name of Barabbas. Now we're told in verse 15 that it was the governor's custom to release a prisoner at a festival each year. This is what is known as the amnesty custom, amnesty custom. And you see, Barabbas was a well-known criminal. He is described in other gospel writings as a rebel who had been involved in a violent insurrection. His crimes were known. If you ever jumped on the, uh, service, uh, sorry, the New South Wales Police Facebook page, you'll sometimes see pictures of criminals with their list of crimes involved. And people sometimes share and like and comment and all the rest of it, right? You see a criminal and their crimes. That was Barabbas. His crimes were known. So just as Jesus was undeniably innocent, Barabbas was undeniably guilty. And yet, the innocent Jesus was preferred over a real criminal who could do real harm to a community. And the crowd was willing to risk it just to condemn an innocent man, just to avoid recognizing Jesus as king. To add to that injustice, Jesus was tried and prosecuted not by a legal system with due process, but by an angry mob. This wasn't a jury that was selected, assessed, and vetted. This was a crowd that was angry at Jesus and wanted him dead. There was no reason or rationality, just pure emotion and anger. I want you to imagine this scene with me, okay? This is what happens in verses 22 to 23. There is an agreement that one prisoner will be released. So Pilate asks, okay, ask the people, imagine you're the people, who do you want me to release, Jesus or Barabbas? And the crowd answers, Barabbas. And so Pilate then asks, what should I do with Jesus? If you want Barabbas free, then what do you want me to do with Jesus? To which they answered, crucify him. Now I want you to read verse 23 with me, right? Listen to the rationality behind this. Now Pilate asked this question, a very critical question. Why, what crime has he committed? This was a straight question. There was no question behind the question. It's not complicated math, right? He just asked, what did Jesus do wrong? What is their answer? What does the rest of verse 23 say? It says, they shouted all the louder crucify him. Friends, there was no rationality behind this. They couldn't even be bothered coming up with a pretend or made-up answer. They just yelled louder because they wanted him dead. This was a witch hunt, a mob rule. Friends, I want us to see that Jesus is a king who understands what it is like to be punished for something he did not do. He knows injustice. He is a king who is all too familiar with broken systems that reward evil and punish good. But he's also a king who understands loneliness. If you pay attention to the text, you'll notice that the gospel writer Matthew is very intentional in painting a picture. He's got a beautiful palette and he's painting a picture of loneliness in the midst of a busy crowd. That, that's, that's skill, isn't it? It's easy to paint isolation. But it's very hard to paint loneliness when there's people around, but, but he does this in a masterful way, right? For example, in Matthew 27, 32, we read of Jesus making his way to Golgotha where he will be crucified. Other gospel writings tell us he's dragging this heavy cross. And in verse 32 says that Jesus and the soldiers escorting him met a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene. And the soldiers forced Simon to carry the cross on Jesus' behalf. Now, 
you might have read this passage before, and you'll know it. this is often interpreted as Jesus' weakness. He is so weak from repeated torture and punishment. He is so weak because he's been beaten and abused. He's gone days without sleep, and that's absolutely true. Jesus was in no state to carry this heavy cross. But you see, what we sometimes miss is also Matthew's point that this was a profoundly lonely journey. So that someone had to be forced to help him. The crowds were all watching, but there was no one there around to help. Someone had to be forced to do it. Think about it. Feeling lonely in an empty room is one thing, right? But the pain of loneliness is amplified when you feel lonely in the midst of a crowd. When there's human contact all around you, but no one is willing to reach back. That sort of loneliness is more piercing than being alone in a room. And Jesus understood. The isolation and loneliness is further emphasized in verse 34 when Jesus is offered a drink. It tells us in verse 34 that the drink was mixed with gall. Now, what is that? It's likely the gallbladder of an animal that made the drink bitter and disgusting. And now, while you may not order this at your local coffee shop, this concoction was actually a very common cocktail that helped put prisoners in a state of relaxation to numb the pain of crucifixion. There was no neurofin, panadol, or morphine to take the edge off. This was the only narcotic that could ease the pain of a shameful execution. As an aside, those with an awareness to the Old Testament, especially Psalm 69 verse 21, will know that the offer of this drink is a sign that Jesus is the fulfillment of the righteous sufferer in the book of Psalms. You'll have to follow us and saturate with Scripture to understand this, right? But it's, it's, it's foretelling and Jesus is fulfilling that He is the one who will bear the punishment of sinners and offer salvation to all who believe. It's, it's beautiful. This is the work of a master writing this, right? But you see, what we also notice here is that the only comfort that Jesus had in the midst of a crucifixion was not friends, was not family, was not companions. The only comfort he had was a bitter and disgusting drink that he could not even swallow. This lonely journey is met with a lonely and comfortless crucifixion. To make matters worse, verse 35 tells us that Jesus looked down, he sees the Roman soldiers casting lots, they're gambling, they're dividing up his only inheritance, his clothes. And of course, it was common for those being crucified to be stripped naked, because part of the pain of crucifixion was not just physical, it was emotional. It wasn't just to have nails through your hands, it was also to be exposed to public. It's a very uncomfortable thing. Even if you willingly submit yourself to it, right? Like those of you who've been to onsens in Japan, right? Like you know what's going to happen. You know what you have to do, right? And you know what's expected, but you still feel like super squirmish about it. And if you like accidentally touch someone, you're like, oh, no, 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 right? But to be forcibly stripped bare like this, against your will, laid before people who do not know you, hung there publicly. What commonly happened is that the clothes of a stripped naked criminal would become the property of the guards and they could decide what to do with the clothes. 
But I want you to notice something with me, right? Jesus was not wearing Gucci or Armani. He would not have made it onto the sneakers and preachers page on Instagram. There was nothing precious or valuable about his garments or his clothes. In fact, if the gospel writings tell us anything, it was probably soaked with blood and sweat like me right now and and, and tears, right? It's the kind of garment that you wouldn't even bother washing because it was beyond repair. It's the kind of garments that your mom uses to wipe the kitchen table, right? But still, it was the only material possession that Jesus had. But even that couldn't be given to someone he cared. Rather, it was divided among Roman soldiers who were probably going to use it as rags. So there hangs Jesus on the cross, undeniably innocent, robbed of natural justice, lonely, cold, and bare. Church, the Bible has portrayed this image for a number of very significant reasons. The reason why if you ever go to Europe and you visit churches in so many stained glass windows, this is the central image that you see. There is a reason. Very significantly, it paints a picture of a God who has entered into our world to identify with our pains. It paints a picture of a Jesus who has entered into our world to identify with our pains. So that while some of us may not experience injustice and loneliness in such a physical way, I suspect that many of us know these feelings in a profoundly personal way. Do you sometimes feel mistreated despite your innocence? Despite not having done anything wrong? Like you, you, you know the pain of that, don't you? Do you sometimes feel preferred over those who actually do harm? Do you sometimes feel unjustly steamrolled or silenced, not by truth, but by popular opinion? Jesus knows that. Do you sometimes feel like you're walking on this path of pain all by yourself? Everyone around sees it, but no one understands, and you're doing it on your own. Do you sometimes feel like there's no one or nothing there to comfort you? Do you feel like no one even knows that you're hurting? Jesus knows. And here's the thing, friends. When we recite the creed and when we declare he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, he descended to the dead, we are firstly saying that Jesus is the God and the King who knows what it is like to suffer, to experience injustice and loneliness even to the point of death. This is a God who has suffered. You see, every religion and worldview says that you must suffer for your God. You must suffer to get what you need. Even our culture marked by secularism teaches that, right? You want pleasure, you want happiness, you want hope, you want fulfillment. You need to do everything that you can. You need to grind and hustle. You need to suffer. You may even need to put your life on the line to have it. Only the Christian faith says that God has suffered for you. Jesus has suffered for you so that you could get what you need. This here is a radical and countercultural claim. And that's the first thing when we're declaring. When every fortnight we declare that Jesus suffered and died, we are not just recounting history. We are declaring a massive theological reality that subverts everything we know about this world. That Jesus has come to suffer. But as we utter these words, we are also saying that Jesus is the King who has come to bring all of this to an end. He is the King who has come to bring all of this to an end. 
And we see this in how different people respond to these events, right? If you read the rest of the passage, verses 38 to 54, we are invited to ask the question, will we turn in faith or will we walk away in anger? That's what point three is trying to say. Come there with me. Because here we read of two other criminals who were crucified that day. On, one on Jesus' left and one on Jesus' right. And what's interesting about them is that they observed everything that took place. They're watching all of this, right? And now they're hanging on the cross next to each other in what appears to be their final moments. And, and Matthew's gospel is very brief about this account, right? Matthew just says, and there were two thieves on the cross. But Luke's gospel, which records the same events, gives us a little bit more detail. Luke's gospel tells us that they had a bit of a conversation. And this conversation shows us who Jesus is, what he's done, and this moves us to a response. Uh, Turn to Luke 23, verse 39 with me. It's a similar account with a bit more detail. One of the thieves in Luke 23, verse 39, starts hurling insults and starts saying out loud to Jesus, aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. I want you to notice something with me. The thief knows that Jesus is the Messiah, God's anointed one. He knows that Jesus' primary mission is to save people from their slavery to sin. He says, save yourself, right? But listen to his tone. There is disbelief. There is anger. There is bitterness. There is sarcasm. There is resentment. In other words, he calls on Jesus to save without believing that Jesus can actually do it. He continues to keep Jesus at at a distance. Listen very closely. Could that be some of us in this room today? Where you cognitively know what Jesus can do, but you refuse to accept it as your reality. You're waiting for God to prove something as if he hasn't already done all these things for you. And maybe your rejection is not so much a problem with God, but a problem with you. Maybe your pride is what's holding you back from the joy that God promises in Christ. Could it be that you know all the right things in your heart? You are hardened and bitter and angry and resentful. That's what we see as a first response. In sharp contrast, the other criminal says to the other criminal, Don't you fear God? Like they're talking to each other. Imagine Jesus in the middle, one on the right, one on the left, and Jesus is there. These ones, he's talking to each other, right? The other one says, Don't you fear God? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Now, this other thief also understands that Jesus is the Messiah who's come to save, but we'll give him more information, right? Uh, this thief reinforces Jesus' innocence, he's done nothing wrong. He confesses that him and the other criminal are punished justly. And so what follows is one of the most mind-boggling and expectation-defying expressions of God's grace. If there is any reason to find the Christian faith hard to believe in, it's what follows right here. A criminal who has done wrong, who has sinned against God and has sinned against people, You see what follows? He says here, the thief in humility says, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This extremely brief statement, just nine words, is a sign of repentance. He understood that Jesus had the power to forgive. He understood that all that was required was an expression of contrition, real contrition, humility, repentance, and faith. This thief is effectively saying, please save me. And so Jesus in Luke 23 verse 43 says, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Don't you see, all he had to do is say and confess and Jesus responds. <clears throat> but I want you to know something very clearly, right? What a lot of people will say, that is unjust. That is not fair. The thief who did not want repentance was punished and that's fair. And the other thief should have experienced the exact same thing. That will be justice. And you know what? You were absolutely right. Justice is that they both suffer the same consequences for their sins. What we find at the cross, though, is not just justice. It is mercy. It is grace. It is an offer of forgiveness that does not undermine justice, but goes beyond that. To say that Jesus will suffer on their behalf for their sake. And because of this, the pain, the fear, and the loneliness of this repentant thief comes to an end through faith in Jesus. So that while he does die a physical death, what awaits him is something even greater, an eternity with God. Make no mistake, this thief was not trying to get a get out of hell card. There was genuine repentance true remorse, true dependence on Christ. All because of grace. Something similar happens in verse 54. We are told um, a centurion was also observing all this. He, he saw everything that happened. But then the centurion's experience zooms in on Jesus in verse 50, where Jesus breathed his last breath. And notice what happens. The curtain of the temple is torn in two and is ripped to shreds. This sounds to us like a home renovation gone wrong, right? But this, we, we think that because we actually don't understand what's going on. Because for the Jews, the curtain of the temple functioned to separate the holy and the profane. It separated the sacred and the sinful. It separated the righteous God and unrighteous humanity. God resided on one side and the rest of humanity resided on the other side. And only once a year, a special high priest could walk through that barrier, enter into God's presence on behalf of these people. And every single time, Apart from that, God and humanity will be separated because the sacred and the sinful cannot come together. A pleasing sacrifice was needed to break this barrier. A priest who could intercede on behalf of humanity was needed to break through this barrier. God's grace and kindness was needed to break this barrier. What we find is Jesus is the climactic fulfillment of all of these things. Jesus is himself the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is himself the perfect high priest who has come to offer a sacrifice once for all. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of God's grace and kindness. 
We're told from the Old Testament that God knows His people and wants to walk with His people. In the New Testament, in Christ, we see that happen literally and physically. It is through Christ that the presence of God is no longer confined behind a temple curtain. Through Christ's perfect work on the cross, God's presence by His Spirit rushes forth like light into a dark world, to the ends of the world, so that redemption and salvation can be known to all. Because God and Jesus Christ did not just come to identify with our pain. He has also come to inaugurate a new kingdom where the effects of a fallen world is beginning to be reversed. This was a spiritually significant moment. And it's no wonder we're told from a passage that the earth shook. So coming back to verse 54. It was at this very earth-shattering moment that the centurion stands in awe. He's stunned and in words of faith says, Surely he was the Son of God. The centurion believed that Jesus is the king we long for. A king who does not just understand, but a king who is undoing the sinful and fallen effects of this world. Here's the truth for us, friends. Lace within these verses is an invitation for us to concede to Christ as King. Our passage shows that there are two ways to respond, right? There is either bitter, angry rejection, and that's so common, right? Or we in faith and humility accept Him. Since Jesus is the good and gracious King, will we continue to draw near to Him? Will we submit to His Word? Will we walk in His way? He is not here to oppress us, but to love us. And perhaps in a moment when we do communion, you may want to do some serious business with God because you have aspects of your life where you are rejecting Him as King. You're pushing Him out. Perhaps today is an opportunity to concede to Him as King once more. Secondly, though, this here is an invitation for us to cry out to God, to continue to depend on God in Jesus Christ. Friends, we, we, we live in a world where we are hungry to cry out for help to something or someone. And the problem is for so many people we cry out to, they can listen, they can hear, but what can they do? The God of the Bible tells us that Christ is the one who hears our sorrows and our griefs and the one who truly cares and the one who can do something about it. This echoes the invitation of the psalmist to cry out to God as an expression of our deep dependence, but also as an expression of our hope. The kingship of Jesus means he doesn't just sympathize. He's also in the process of reversing hurts, wrongs, and griefs. He does this for all who believe. I want to finish off by reading a very short story called The Long Silence. You can put your um, outlines and your Bibles down and just listen along, right? This imagines a scene at Christ's return. If you want to close your eyes, some of you are already doing that. You can, you can just follow along. Right? It's time to wake up. <clears throat> Here's what it says. <clears throat> at the end of time... Billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a brunette. 
she ripped open the sleeve to reveal a tattoo number from a Nazi concentration camp. We have endured terrors, beatings, torture, and death. In another group, a Negro lowered his collar and said, what about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn. Lynched for no crime by being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes muttered, why should I suffer? It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted into this world. How lucky was God to live in heaven where it's all sweetness and light, where there is no weeping or fear, where there is no hungry or hatred. What did God know of all that man was forced to endure in this world? God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So, each of these groups sent forth their leader, a chosen because he or she had suffered the most. They sent a Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a cancerous child. In the center of the plane, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. They said before God could be qualified to be their judge, He must endure what they had endured. And the decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. They said, let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges. Be it trialed by jury or convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured, they said. At last... Let him see what it means to be terribly alone. And then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify his death. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up. Mmm, yes, yes. And when that last Finnish pronouncing sentence was uttered, there was A long silence. No one uttered another word. No one moved. For suddenly they all knew that God had already served his sentence. Friends, don't you see that Jesus knows what it is like? Jesus knows what it is like for you and for me. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified dead and was buried and he descended to the dead. The depths of suffering, he knows it better than anyone else. He doesn't just know your suffering, he knows the suffering of the person sitting next to you and the one next to you and the one next to you. But the direction of hope, he brings it to all who believe. Church, will we concede? Will we cry out today? Let me pray for us. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us and we thank you that you know exactly what it is like. You know the depths of pain and suffering and you've come in your Son to right all wrongs. 
And so right now, Lord, as we gather to celebrate and commemorate this reality, Father, I pray that you will press these truths deeper into our hearts. And we pray that as we partake in communion, we will engage in the work of conceding and crying out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.